Lord, in this moment, we look to you. We lift the gaze of our hearts towards your throne. Lord, we realize that there's a lot of confusion in our day. From our leaders in the nation to the common person and how they view life. But Lord, we choose to come to your house where truth is proclaimed. And Lord, we choose to come and receive wisdom. We choose to come and receive direction and revelation concerning who you are and who we are in you and without you. So Lord, we come with desperation. This is the end of a week, a work week, a school week. Many people are tired, weary, but Father, quicken us that we may call upon your name. And so we pray even now that all distraction would be drained out of our minds, that all unsettlement in our emotions would be still under the truth of your word, and that, Lord, tonight our lives would be changed. We come to receive from you, and we give you what you deserve, and that is all our attention, all our worship, all our affection. Lord, meet with us. Come. This is your sanctuary, Father. These are your people, Lord. We are your people. And for those who do not know you, for those who think they know you but do not really know you, change them, Lord. Change them from the inside out. We pray for an empowerment of the Holy Spirit to be upon this Bible study so that we would be changed by it. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 13. As we continue in the book of Deuteronomy, we concluded in chapter 12 where Moses, by the Spirit, gave instructions to the people of God concerning one component of our walk with God, and that is something, as we know, as worship. Worship. Old Covenant had a different expression of worship, but principles throughout the Word of God is for us today, including chapter 12. And we concluded that worship for the true follower of Christ, for the one who truly says that they believe in God, worship is not a momentary thing. Worship is not something that you do a couple times a week. Worship is a lifelong heart posture that elevates God in adoration, that elevates God of most importance above all pursuits, above all possessions, above all people. And we stay there. It's an inward revelation that we settle with. And from that inward settled truth comes an outward expression of various forms, such as what we just did a few minutes ago. We sing praises to God. We serve God in ministry. We give. We represent Him. We relate to Him and relate to others as His representatives. This is worship. It's a two-part reality. And Moses gave guidelines to the Israelites about worship, and they relate to us to some degree because it reveals something about God's heart and how we should seek Him. But here's the reality about pure, undefiled, holy, sincere worship. Number one, it's attainable. It's attainable. I can come to the place where I can live in a state of worship that actually pleases God. We always have this false understanding that uh, it always has to be tainted with sin and it always has to be tainted with, with this and that. No, we can come to a place where we actually please God with our worship. And not only is it attainable, it's sustainable. So I can stay in that place in the fear of God. I can stay in that place of loving God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. Nevertheless, though it's attainable and sustainable, true worship will never go unchallenged. 
True worship will in fact be daily assaulted by outward and inward forces that will try to remove God off of the throne of our hearts. That's the reality. And that's exactly what Moses now is about to get into in chapter 13. He dealt with worship. He dealt with how it should be expressed. But now he's going to deal with the challenges. Now he's going to deal with the hurdles. Now he's going to deal with the threats to the thing that we want to give to God continually. And guess what? Though it's Old Covenant, though it's deep into the Old Testament, it is very much of a threat today. And it's not just one, three threats. Three specific threats. If this Bible study is going to be called anything, it is three threats to our pure worship to God. And we look at chapter 13. It's a short chapter, but it's divided in three segments where Moses now pinpoints three different elements that would try to assault our worship. Let's just look at verse 1. I'm going to read these quickly to see the three different ones. Verse 1 says, If a prophet... If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder. Okay. Now we come down to verse 6. If your brother, if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend, who is as your own soul, entices you secretly. Then we come to verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities which Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, three threats. And we can categorize them as this. Number one, false prophets. False prophets. Number two, false friends or false family members. And number three, a false culture false culture we come to false prophets in verse 1 we see that this is what Moses wants to start with and he's not speaking about ineffective lame powerless type of prophets he's speaking about individuals that will actually arise among them that will perform such supernatural displays of power in a way that it could not be just excused as trickery they're convincing they draw attention. They will cause people to wonder and to stand amazed. And prophets, these men specifically, are not from a foreign nation. That would be something that we can detect pretty obviously. They come from a different place and they come into Israel and they try to do things and preach a different message. That's not what it says here. It says, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you, so they're camouflaged as the people of God. They're camouflaged as those who descend from the covenant race at the time known as Israel. So they're from within. If they come up from among you, and if they perform these certain signs that are apparently pretty convincing, he says, be careful. Now before we get into the warning, I think this is a good place to pause in our Bible study to discuss the role of a prophet. Prophets are sprinkled throughout the Bible. In fact, the Old Testament authors, a majority of them are prophets. So we, we should understand the role of a prophet, especially in the Old Testament as we're studying it. 
Now, Bible study, right? So when you hear the word prophet, what comes to mind? It can be anything in terms of nature, calling, uh, ability, or responsibility. What comes to mind when you hear prophet or when you read of a prophet in the Bible? Isaac? Someone who's set apart to proclaim a message from the Lord. Someone who is set apart to declare a message from the Lord. Absolutely. Anything else that comes to mind concerning the prophet? A man of God. A man of God. A man who walks with God. A man who knows God. Sure. A man who doesn't twist his words A man who does not just declare the word of the Lord, but declares the word of the Lord faithfully. He doesn't insert his own opinion. He doesn't insert his own authority to change this or that. Whatever he gets from God, he declares it as pure as possible by the power of the Spirit. Absolutely. Anything else concerning the prophet? The role of the prophet, the nature of the prophet, the calling of the prophet. Yes. Say that again, sorry. Who can prophesy. So prophesy, do you mean who can declare futuristic events? A man who has the ability to pass through the corridor of time and declare something that was not yet to happen that will happen as a way of declaring that he is truly from God. Yes. Along with that, it would be the will of God. The prophet says, thus saith the Lord, this is what's going to happen. So it is also a present reality in which God declares something to be known in the moment and not just as a future event. What God desires from his people in the now. Absolutely. So he's speaking authoritatively on behalf of God. These are all right. Yes. Anything else concerning the prophet? A faithful worker. Okay. He serves God faithfully. Absolutely. You cannot fall into a place of inserting again your own authority or your own plan or your own wisdom or your own revelation when you want to be a prophet. Sure. Anything else concerning the prophet? Friend of God. Friend of God, sure. Close to God. Again, it's that, that language of nearness to God. Let me ask this question. Can anybody volunteer to be a prophet? Can anybody put in a resume to say, Lord, I desire to be a prophet? Do we see anywhere in the Bible where somebody desires to be a prophet and based on that desire becomes a prophet? We don't. It's not like a Nazarite. Remember the Nazarite vow where any Israelite can volunteer to, to be consecrated unto the Lord for a specific season of time. But a Nazarite is not a prophet. There's a, there's a different purpose there. Nor is he like a priest. Who can be a priest in the Old Testament? Who alone could be a priest? The Levites. The descendants of Aaron could alone be the priests. Nobody else could be a priest. But when it comes to the prophet, a prophet could not choose to be so, nor could he be appointed by another man, a prophet's call came directly from God and God alone. Now he can use another prophet to call out a prophet, but it ultimately came from God. We see that with Elijah and Elisha. So the nature of the prophet's call is that it comes directly from the Lord. It is not something that can be instituted by human authority. That is vitally important. Now, what's beautiful about the prophet, because we read about different prophets in, in the Old Testament, is that they come from a spectrum of backgrounds. Jeremiah and Ezekiel, what were they before they were prophets? Does anybody know? It tells us in the first few verses of their books. Priests. Priests. Jeremiah and Ezekiel were, in fact, priests before they were called to be prophets. Elisha, we brought him up. What was Elisha's background before he became a prophet? What was he doing when Elijah found him? Plowing. He was a farmer. That was his background. Amos. Anybody know Amos? His background? 
The prophet Amos was a herdsman and he was a dresser of what? Sycamore trees. He was a gardener. And then you have all these different prophets that don't have necessarily a book dedicated to them. And we don't really know much information about them. But what we do know is that they had a very different background, but one specific call and the same call that applied to all of them. Now we know what? Major and what prophets? Major and minor prophets. What makes them major and minor? Does anybody know? The books. The size of the books. So when you read, uh, you read Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, we go major prophets. And we think like they're the more elite. And then we come to like the different ones, right? Come to Amos. And we come to these smaller books. Malachi, Micah. And we go, oh, they're minor prophets. The only difference... And the only way we categorize them for that reason is because their books are smaller. They're all in the same playing field. And so different backgrounds, same role. And if there's any way that we can summarize the role of a prophet, it is in two words. God's spokesman. It's as simple as that. They hear from God and they declare to the people of God exactly what God intends to say to them. Again, they don't speak on their own opinion they are carried along by the Holy Spirit to say exactly what God wants them to say and to be pure in their devotion to that responsibility. That's exactly what a prophet does. And it is vitally important to understand that in order to understand the role of a false prophet. And this is how we know it's a speaking role. If we can put up in this very book, Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, and see how this describes the role of a prophet. God speaks to Moses and he says to him, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. Now, he's going to raise up another prophet. What is he going to do? And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Deuteronomy 18, 18. There's the speaking role. That's the main job of a prophet. God puts his words in their mouth, and they speak it faithfully. But I want to argue something else concerning the prophet. When is the first time that we see the occurrence of the word prophet in the entire Bible? Genesis 20. Genesis when? 20. Concerning who? Concerning Abraham. Genesis chapter 20 verse 7 is where we first see the word prophet and it is referenced to Abraham of all people. Now look what it says specifically though. Abimelech. Concerning Abimelech and that whole situation with his wife. Abraham's wife. It says, now then return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Okay, this tells me something about prophets. The first occurrence of the word prophet is found here with Abraham. And the first thing that is linked, the description of him being a prophet is linked to the fact that he will pray for Abimelech, for his people, and something will happen. See, we understand prophets as preaching men, but before we can understand them as preaching men, we have to understand them as praying men. They are praying men. They are men who are near God, who walk with God. And from that place of intimacy, do they hear God and then privately from that place go out publicly to declare from the rooftops what they heard in the closet. And a praying man is exactly what a prophet is. And we see that in the Bible, don't we? Don't we see it with Samuel? Don't we see him interceding for Saul? Don't we see him declaring that he will forever continue to pray as long as he lived for the Israelites as a vow? And so we cannot divorce the reality of these men who prayed, or rather preached, from their prayer lives. 
In fact, this is actually one of the things that God says through Jeremiah towards the false prophets to see if they were truly prophets. Ready for this? Jeremiah 27, verse 18. Look what the Lord says. This is profound. Concerning the false prophet, he goes, if they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, then let them intercede with the Lord of hosts, that the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem may not go to Babylon. Do you see the challenge? He says, Jeremiah, these guys that are saying that I told them that they're not going to be exiled, these guys that said that the Lord is not going to do anything, peace, peace, when there is no peace, challenge them if they're really my prophets, to pray and ask me not for this to happen, and it will be proven that they are truly men of God. So their intercession was the test of the authenticity of their prophetic ministry. And so prophets were praying men as much as they were preaching men. And we all agree that they are men who spoke on behalf of God, but many have reduced the role of a prophet simply to declaring futuristic events. Right? We understand prophet and we go, yeah, they're, they're telling of things to come, of the Messiah who's to come, of future judgment, of the millennial reign. True. But that's just a small fragment. In fact, the primary role of a prophet is not necessarily declaration of future events, rather of declaration of going back to the word of God. The prophet, we see, he encourages. He warns. He provides divine guidance. He instructs leaders. But the main role of a prophet in the Old Testament is to denounce sin. Is to denounce injustice, unrighteousness, and to call the people of God back to repentance and faithfulness to God according to the covenant established through the constitution of the book of Deuteronomy. That is the role of a prophet. Get back to the word of God. Get back to your covenant that you made with God. And that's what we see. These men who cried out, out of brokenness. You know what I love about prophets? God made them feel their message before they declared it. That's what they did. Do you realize that? There was a moment in Ezekiel's life where God made him do crazy things like lay on your side for X amount of days. Lay on the other side for X amount of days. He kills his wife. He does all these wonderful things. Is it really wonderful in the flesh? But he wants them to feel the message before he declares it. He wants them to have God's heart. So he goes to a prophet named Hosea. He says, I'm going to make you feel my heart. I'm going to make you understand what my heart feels towards my people. Go marry a prostitute. And I want you to marry. And this is what I want you to do. I don't just want you to marry her. She's going to commit adultery. And from that place, I want you to reach into your pocket, buy her back. That's what we have to understand concerning the prophet. It is no small thing. It is no light thing. It is not something that can just be understood as a preacher. There's something deeper than that. There's something much more significant and much more impactful than that. And so what happens here? If we understand the role of a prophet, then we know the role of a false prophet. If the role of the prophet is to draw the people towards God, then the role of the false prophet is to do the opposite, to bring the people away from God. And that's exactly what Moses' warning is. There are people that are going to rise amongst you that will do exactly the opposite of what my true messengers will do. And I think to myself, these guys are going to perform signs and wonders. These guys are going to have the ability to display some kind of supernatural power. 
But understand this, that's not the authority. We have to understand this very carefully. Miracles and supernatural events are not the basis of truth. God's word is. Do you see that? He goes, even if they do these things and they say something in contradiction to the word of God, they're false. Now, if they do things in validating to the word of God, then that's right. Praise God. But if they do something and say something in contrary to what's already been written, run. That's important for our day as well. Do you know how many people are running after signs and wonders more than the word of God? Do you know how people are being duped and being sucked into a theology or a wrong view of who God is or principles of the word of God simply on the basis of, well, this happened or that happened. And so this is why I believe. And I remember having a conversation with somebody who, it was a very wonderful back and forth conversation over dinner. And this conversation was regarding saints and how one should relate to saints, church saints, traditional saints. And as we were having a conversation, uh, we established this from the beginning. And I think this is very important. If you ever have a conversation with anybody who professes to be a Christian, ask this question. What is your authority? What is your authority? Is it the word of God or is it something else? See, if that person doesn't say it's the word of God, then the conversation can end right there. Because we're arguing based off two different types of authority. But if it's the word of God, then the conversation can continue, right? So the conversation can continue from that point on. And, and really, the, the conversation was, yes, we recognize that there are people who God has used in the past. But have people fallen into a place where they have elevated man above Jesus Christ? Have people fallen into the trap in which they have now pinned upon a man equal or even greater work that is solely attributed to the mediating work of Jesus Christ. And as the conversation went back and forth, according to the scripture, just going to verses, the dangers of idolizing a person, finally that individual rebutted with this, but do you realize the miracles that have happened? Have you heard that argument before? I'm seeing a lot of heads nodding, yes. But the miracles that have happened in this person's name, the miracles that have happened when this person came to this specific location. And this was the argument based on Deuteronomy 13. Miracles are not authority. Signs and wonders do not validate a certain truth, especially if it contradicts the word of God. And that's what we have to understand. No matter what is done and no matter what name it's being done in, if it comes against basic truths of the Bible, we have to be very, very careful. Now, if signs and wonders are done and Jesus is glorified and the gospel is proclaimed with power, we say yes and amen. But if any signs and wonders are done pulling people away from worship to the one and true and living God, we should have a big question mark on it. And I think to myself, too, reading this, an astounding verse is about to come up. Why would God allow this? Why is God going to allow the people to come into the very center of his will, the promised land, and from that place, false prophets will arise to try to deceive the people of God? 
Well, one, it's clear it's a spiritual assault on the devotion of God's people. That's obvious. But that's not only, that's not the only thing. Look at verse 3. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Why? For the Lord your God is testing you. Wow. He's testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Do you realize this? That the presence of falsehood, that the manifestation of false prophets and false messages is the means by which God will test the devotion of his people. So he allows it so that when it comes into contact with people's profession of faith, with people's walk with God, it will be a means by which he can measure their devotion towards him. And I look around in our day too, and sometimes there are false prophets that are blatant, that are right there on the TV late at night, that are on the YouTube channels, that are spreading up abroad on social media platforms. But listen, it goes even more than that because there are messages that are not necessarily religious but are pulling away from God's people and their devotion to him. I'm astounded because, listen to this very carefully, the warning was against signs and wonders being performed. Like, that's a, that's a big bait for people to be pulled away from God. But unfortunately, in our day, we're seeing people being pulled away from God, not by signs and wonders, by, by celebrities, by politicians, by modern-day philosophers that aren't using apparent supernatural displays of power, but just because of their charisma, because of their sense of apparent wisdom, because of their, their talents, People are being drifted away. And I'm thinking, we are bombarded by it in this day more than ever. Everywhere we look, there's a message. Everywhere we look, there's somebody else standing on a platform, operating under the spirit of this age, trying to pull the people away from God from really worshiping Him. And I think to myself, why? Why, why, why? And then this verse is highlighted. God is testing us. Do you love me? Do you love me? That when you stand before falsehood, you still stand for me. So whenever my heart's being challenged to love something that God hates, God is seeing something in me. I want you to realize this, please. We need to understand this, that every temptation is a test. Every temptation is an opportunity to worship. That when I say no to temptation, I'm saying yes to God in worship. Look at it that way. If you need any ammunition to fight against temptation, let it be this. My no is an act of worship. My turning away is a declaration of praise. Because God says here that when I watch what you do in the presence of falsehood, it's going to determine where you stand in your love for me. What do we do with it? He gives the instruction in verse 5. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. Old covenant, theocracy, direct governance from God as king over a nation. We learn this. We don't put anybody to death, okay? But the principle lies true that anything that teaches rebellion against my God, I sever from my life. I cut it off. I cut it off. If there's any teaching that is entertaining anti-biblical things, I cut it off. 
no matter how charismatic a person might be, no matter how much display of supernatural power they might have, if it's not Bible, I cut it off. I cut it off. And I pray and hope that as, as a church, that we would filter everything through the scriptures, no matter what we hear or see or read, that this would be the determining factor of what is truth and who God is. The moment we step away from this is the moment we open ourselves to deceptions beyond we know. And listen, this might sound very harsh, but somebody said it like this, and it can be said different ways, but I understand where they're coming from, that if we don't read our Bibles, we deserve to be deceived. If we don't read our Bibles, we deserve to be deceived. God has given us the fullness of revelation. We can know everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's ours. But the reason why so many are deceived is because they turn away from this book. They neglect this book. They're ignorant of this book. And so whatever is presented in the name of Christ, they can easily swallow it up, not realizing that it has enough poison to ruin their souls. False prophets was the first warning. Now we come to something that's a little bit more sensitive, something that might touch a nerve in our hearts because it doesn't deal with an outsider who publicly declares falsehood. It deals with the most intimate relationships that we have. And we see that right here in verse 6, do we not? He says here, if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is at, as your own soul, entices you secretly. Okay, feel that text, please. Feel the text. Anybody in here have a brother? If your brother. Anybody in here have kids? If your son or your daughter. All the investment that you made into your children. All the memories that you've had with your siblings. Then it goes on to say, the wife. The wife that you've embraced. The romance that has grown over the years. The commitment that has been built throughout time together. And maybe you have no familial ties that are worthy of any recognition of love. Okay. So he says, or if you have a friend. And not just a friend that you say hi and bye to, but a friend. Listen very carefully, because you know how many people say no to worship because of their friends. Please pay attention. If your friend, and not just a random friend, one you consider as close as your own soul. Who had that soul tie relationship in the Bible? Jonathan and David. They were knit in the most deepest way that we can think of. But even if such a person, the closest person that you can consider in your life, entices you to say, let us go and serve other gods, you have to choose God. Now listen, the first segment dealt with public deception. The first section dealt with something out there, something that we witness. And, and we can see that again on, on TV. We can see that on a platform. We attend a meeting and we hear something and go, that's wrong, whatever it may be. But that's not this case. Look what it says here. Entices you secretly. Private. In the dark. One-on-one. -on -one. Um, it's something that somebody would suggest knowing that it is wrong, 
knowing that if the rest of the faithful hear about it, they will be ashamed. And so, listen, they suggested secretly. And they hope that nobody else will know. And they hope that if possible, it can be performed in the dark. Secret enticement from the closest people we know. And sometimes the secret enticement is bold and direct. Come on, man, let's go for it. Come on, let's try it out. And sometimes it is coded by suggestion. Do you know how many terrible things have happened in somebody's life from somebody else in their life who's very close to them that have jokingly brought up something, who have off the cuff made a suggestion, who have tested the waters of where you stand on a certain issue, and then what happens is, what happens? What starts out as someone making a simple joke turns into a curious discussion. And from that curious discussion, it becomes a planned event. Happens all the time. And sometimes the worship to false gods in this section can be with things that they did know about. But look at verse 7. Some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far from you, from the end of the earth to the other. Do you see what he's saying there? Your best friend can come up to you and suggest something that is contrary to pure devotion to Christ. And it could be something in which you are very familiar with, or it can be something that is unknown because it's from the end of the earth, so to speak. And so, in one sense, he's saying that, be careful if they suggest something that you're familiar with, or be careful if they suggest something out of curiosity. Curiosity can kill. And I think if this warning deals with anybody, it deals with the people who have grown up in the house of God. Church kids, PKs, pastor's kids, kids that have grown up with parents who serve the Lord all their lives. Man, you would be amazed to know where curiosity takes on. You would be amazed to know the counsel with Christian kids that are plagued with curiosity. It's everywhere. And all you need is the ingredient of best friend, BFF, curiosity on their part, and because I trust and love and adore this person so much, if they're going to go down the path of curiosity and sin, I'll join them. Go back to Deuteronomy 12.30, if you can, please. And see what God says about this whole idea of how curiosity can go too far. He says, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them, after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You see? Saying, after I've destroyed the enemy in your life, after I've dealt with the power of sin in your life, 
don't try to resurrect it. Don't try to unbury it and discover something. And it could be something from the past or like we read in verse 7 of chapter 13, it could be something from the end of the earth that you heard about and you're kind of curious about. So you're going to take a trip down into a place that you know you shouldn't be taking a trip down into. And that's why you have testimonies of people who have walked away from their upbringing in the faith and have come back and say stuff like what I'm about to tell you as a person who's done the same. It's not worth it. I pray that you would hear the sound of this voice and it would swallow up the suggestion of any one of your friends. I don't care if they're Christians. It's all a lie. It's a facade. Extinguish the curiosity for sin by greater zeal and knowledge for God. You don't need to taste it to know what it's like. Save yourself the time, resources, and energy. But if somebody comes up and suggests something that's even dear to my heart, what am I supposed to do? Verse 8 says it. You shall not yield to him or listen to him. Simple. You should not yield to him or listen to him. Another way, another way of putting it, I don't even give the time or the attention for the person to plant temptation or seeds of doubt in my mind. I don't let it go that far. I don't feed my, listen, if I don't feed my mind off of the junk of this world through different outlets and different means, if I protect myself, if I screen myself and shield myself from, from the way the world pumps poison into my soul, I must even do the same with those who apparently are walking with me in this life and name the name of God, but are actually in a place of vulnerability. And this is where boldness comes in. And this is where the practice of rebuke comes in. This is where I plug my ears and I don't let even the person that I grew up in the pew with to try to plant something in me and me entertain it long enough and try to come up with a plan to do it in the best way possible. I don't let myself get there. I cut it off. And I don't even listen. I don't yield myself. But I go into emergency protocol and try to rescue my friend if I can. But that sometimes doesn't work, right? So then look at verse 9 and 10. But you shall kill him. Okay? Don't kill him. Or don't kill her. But you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward the hand of all the people. So serious was this for the new nation of Israel. That God was trying to flourish and blossom to create a platform for the Messiah to step on the scene, that it was worthy of death. But the principle still lies true. Generally speaking, if I am in a relationship with somebody, even a close relationship, I don't, I'm not talking about somebody that you don't know. I'm talking about cousins. I'm talking about best friends. I'm talking about school friends. Generally speaking, we as the people of God who want to walk faithfully with the Lord, if we know that this person is not walking fully or rightly with God, I must frame that relationship in an evangelistic way. That doesn't mean I preach to them every second. It means that I am going to continually keep it in mind that I will be an influencer and not be influenced. Now, verse 9 kicks in. 
When I go to verse 8 and I don't yield to them and I don't listen to them, that's great. I try to turn the table. That's fine. And you hope for the best. You pray for the best. But if it doesn't go there, and I begin to realize that the evangelizing is not coming from me and it's coming more from them. The moment where I've lost their interest in the place of consecration and total devotion and true worship to God is a moment where I have to now come to a place where I kill that relationship. And how can I identify which relationships to kill in my life? Verse 10. You shall stone him to death with stones. Why? Because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God. That's it. That's it. It's as simple as that, brothers and sisters. If there's anybody in your life that is seeking to draw you away from God, it's time to do something about that relationship before it does something to you. That's it. And really, verse 10 is a beautiful way to gauge all our relationships. Does this person draw me away from God? Or does this person draw me closer to him? And based on that evaluation is what's going to determine my investment in those relationships. And if we don't make that distinction, this is what happens. Ready for this? If you don't make that distinction, you're getting pulled into two different directions. And that's why so many people never grow in God. Because they want, they want the relationships that pull them towards God, and they want the relationships that's pulling them away from God, and they wonder, why am I not moving? Because you're being pulled into two different directions. i got to let go of one or the other. And you'll find out that when you make a stance for the Lord, you'll be amazed of how that stance can influence the one who knows that they're trying to draw you away from God. And sees that you chose God over them. You will be amazed to know how it will mess them up at times. And bring them to their knees. It might not happen next week. It might not happen next month. But when they watch you from a distance and see how consistent you are in God. And how you've placed the Lord your God above all things. They will see that as the most attractive thing. And they will come to you at one point and say, what is it that you have? I want it for myself. But that will never happen if you choose them above your God. False prophets, false friends, false family. Lastly, a false culture. Look at verse 12. If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known, then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. So it went from the one individual prophet who's saying, Look at these signs and wonders. Look at this healing. Look at this manifestation. Kabam, kaboom, kabah. Let's go serve other gods. And run. Then he goes and zooms in into the closest relationships. The ones that you hang out with every day. The ones that you text. The ones that you have inside jokes with. And all for a sudden, one of those friends one day texts you and say, Hey, have you ever tried so and so? Have you ever been to place in place to test the waters to see where you stand and then that thing becomes a curious discussion I wonder what it's like I wonder what it's, and that place becomes a planned event he goes from there and he zooms out again and he goes listen 
You might pass the individual prophet. You might pass the friends. But the devil's next strategy is this. What do you do when you live in a culture saturated with falsehood? What do you do when an entire area is walking in a mindset that is contrary to the word of God? What will you do? And we can go to the principles, but look at this very carefully. I, I read this and it struck my heart. I meditated upon it. He says, look, verse 13, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you. Hold on. Listen to this. He's saying when a handful of guys go into their city and literally convince the whole city to turn their backs on God. And I read that and I thought to myself, wait a minute. It's possible for an entire town to walk away from God based on the influence of a few people. Wow. It's possible for a group of people to redirect a local neighborhood. It's possible for a gang of friends to change society. It's possible for an entire culture to change their values based off the whispers of a few individuals. You know, they did a survey recently on a nationwide level. They asked U.S. citizens what they believe to be the percentage of people in America that are openly gay. In May 2019, they asked the general population, what percentage do you think the United States of America identifies as either gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender? The numbers came out and apparently the population of our country believes that 23.6% of all Americans are gay. That's almost a quarter. So to the general population, almost, they believe that almost 25% of the U.S. are practicing homosexuals. Does anybody know the real number of people who are actually openly LGBT? We're talking anywhere between 2, 3, maximum 4.5% of the population is actually either gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. How does the general population believe that almost a quarter of America is gay when in fact it is less than 5%? Because a few people can influence the masses. Because though the population may be small, their voices are loud. And so we see the threat of a persuasive prophet. We see the threat of our closest people to us. But then what happens when the population at large adopts a principle, a mindset, or a belief that is, not con that is contrary to the word of God? You know what God says? He says, I want you to destroy that place. He says here, verse 16, You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering. He's pretty much saying treat it like a Canaanite city. If they worship these false gods, take care of it just like how you took care of it when you initially came in. But I see something beautiful here at the same time. This is dark. This is not a pleasant text. This is not something that we can necessarily jump right into praise and worship with in terms of joy and glee because it's, it's heavy. But it can turn into something in which we can worship God with, with the same revelation. How? 
Because if a few worthless fellows can turn a city for the devil, then I believe that a few faithful men can do the same for God. That's what we have to see. We have to flip the perspective. We have to flip the perspective. But this idea of culture influencing the people of God is very real in the Bible and it's very real in our day. Can anybody else think of a portion of scripture in which a culture tried to influence the faithful? Anybody think in the Bible, Old Testament specifically? Daniel. Daniel specifically and his friends. Daniel and his friends were from the royal line in Israel when they were exiled into where? Babylon. They came into Babylon and literally the goal of King Nebuchadnezzar was let's brainwash these guys. Let's bring them into university. Let's change their names, names that were identified in their relationship with God, and let's change their identity. So every time we hear, we, they hear us calling them, they're going to hear how their names relate to a false god. We're going to teach them our language. We're going to teach them our witchcraft. We're going to change the way they think, believe, relate, serve God. Okay? And it came to a point, listen to this. It came to a point where in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden statue, a huge one, that represents him. Does anybody know why King Nebuchadnezzar made a golden statue of all things? Why did he do that? What prompted him to build a golden statue in chapter 3? It's related to something right before Daniel chapter 3. The dream. Daniel came to interpret the king's dream in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, there was a dream in which there were different materials that were described on one statue. And the first piece, the head, was what? Made out of what? Gold. Then it went to different portions that represented different kingdoms. And Daniel interpreted how those different materials that represent different kingdoms will take over his kingdom. And ultimately, there will be a rock that is cut out of a mountain that will smash all those kingdoms and become a mountain itself, which is the kingdom of our God. So when Nebuchadnezzar heard this, he, he praised Daniel and his ability, but he was also worried. And he wanted to make a statement. If I'm the gold and my kingdom's going to be destroyed, I'm going to make an entire statue made out of gold. And I'm going to make a statement. I'm and my kingdom are going to be established forever. That's why he did that in Daniel chapter 3. He builds this gold statue. And he commands all the people to bow down to it. Now that's added pressure on top of the faithful who came from Israel. The Jewish boys that came. This is added pressure now. This is exactly what we're talking about. The only difference is they're not in Israel. They're even in a different land completely. This is one town in a nation of the faithful. Now we're talking about a group of men out of that into a place in which everything is foreign and everything is evil. But there's something that happened in the midst of that. And I want to read it to you in Daniel chapter 3, verse 4. It says, And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So we see that, right? Can you imagine the pressure? You're seeing everybody around you bow down, even probably some other Jews. And who knows what the conversation might have been like. It's not recorded, 
But who knows the internal struggle? Why don't we just bend a little bit? Why don't we just bend down our heads? Why don't we just, why don't we just put our hands over our eyes? Why don't we just show something so we're not so obvious? God will understand. We're just blending in the crowd. Our hearts are really for the Lord. This is just an outward act. None of that. But did you see the means by which Nebuchadnezzar tried to convince the people to bow? Did you see how Nebuchadnezzar tried to weaken their knees? How did Nebuchadnezzar make the pill easier to swallow? What did he do? Music. Music. Nebuchadnezzar said this. When you hear the music play, bow. So he understood something. I'm going to create an atmosphere. I'm going to pick at the strings of the heart through a tune in such a way that it will make it more convincible to them to worship something that they wouldn't otherwise. Music. Music is powerful. And if the enemy used music back then, you better believe that he's using it today. Brain chemistry alone through music. It is astounding to know how psychologically music affects behavior. Studies, this is secular studies, this is scientific studies. Have you ever wondered why in bars and clubs they blast music to the point where you can't even say anything to somebody right next to you? Because studies have shown that the louder music is and the specific type of music that is played actually enhances people to purchase more drinks because they drink faster. And when they place moderate music that is hearable, there is less drinking involved at a lesser rate. And we can spend the next five to ten minutes to, to just simply describe how music does something to behavior. And music is not something that originated on the earth. In Job 38, and I would love for us to see this. In Job 38, verse 4 and 7. Job 38, 4 and 7, we see something that, that speaks about the origins of songs. Look what God says to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? He's talking about the foundation of the world. The world hasn't been created. He's saying, where were you when I created this thing called the earth? Where were you when I set its measurements, when I implemented the blueprint of its initial creation? And then he says this, when? Meaning, at that moment of creation. At that moment when things were spoken into existence. And then he says, at that same time something was happening, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. We read Genesis 1, and we don't necessarily get that perspective. But according to Job 38, you know what we see? That when God created the foundations of the earth, there were angels singing, celebrating, rejoicing. 
worshiping God for his wisdom and his power manifested through his creation. And this tells me something. Though music is very much, singing and songs are very much a reality of our world, its origins are heavenly. Its origins are heavenly. Not just its origins, its intentions were for worship. That its DNA, its initial creative purpose was to be directed towards God. And to bring praises to God and recognition towards the Lord. Satan didn't create music. He perverts it. And he uses it to not be directed towards God, but to glorify the very things that Jesus Christ died on the cross for. Music has power. And Nebuchadnezzar knew, if I can play the tune, it will be easier for them to bow. Why are so many people jumping into violence? Why are so many people jumping into sexual immorality? Why are so many people drunking, uh, are depressed and angry and frustrated? Here's one question we can ask. What type of music are you listening to? What are you putting into your ears? So throughout the week, you're listening to music that glorifies sexual morality, glorifies violence, glorifies pride, glorifies self, and then for one hour on a Sunday morning, people wonder why they struggle to sing and praise God. When all week people have been glorifying sin and the chemistry of their own minds have adopted something which is intended to worship God and give praise to Him. Music can be a force that can enhance the power of temptation. Or music can be a force that can enhance my devotion to God. I love the story, this little snippet with the prophet Elisha. In 2 Kings 3, verse 14. Please look at this. In 2 Kings 3, 14 and 15. What happens? The king of Judah, the king of Israel, come into partnership. They want to go to war. And the king of Judah says, Do you have any real prophets among you that can give us some direction here? And Judah says, Well, there's a... They come to the conclusion that the real prophet is Elisha. So they go and take a trip to visit Elisha. And Elisha is so vexed. He is so bothered with the sight of the king of Israel, who is an apostate. And he goes, if it wasn't for the king of Judah being here, I would have nothing to do with you. That, that's what he says, right? As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. Now stop. That sounds like a frustrated individual. That sounds like somebody who in their soul, their emotions have come to a place of anger. But then he, do, he does something in verse 15. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Do you see that? So he used music in that moment to soothe his soul. To come to a place in which he could in fact focus, so to speak. Be in tune with the Lord. To come to a place in which he can engage with the Spirit of God. And he was able now to faithfully serve the Lord from that place. And music was the means for that. And so I see Nebuchadnezzar using it to make people bow. To make these men 
who were outside of their country, outside of the place where the temple was, outside of where their homes were, outside of where their practices of the religion were supposedly supposed to be done, into a foreign land. And Nebuchadnezzar says, play the music. Let's see them bow. I see Elisha. We needed a means to get back to a place in which he can serve the Lord. And he got a faithful musician to play in a way for his inner man to be filtered and cleansed so that he can now serve God and worship him, so to speak, more faithfully. And speaking on this note with Daniel and his friends, I get a jolt of joy when I read this story. You know why? Because it's possible for a few worthless men to turn a city around. It's possible for a man like Nebuchadnezzar to poison the minds of the faithful, to bow down to things that they never would bow down to, but to use a means like music to make it happen. I see something else. I see the ripple effect of one faithful individual who stood for God and because of that, affected the very culture that tried to infect him. We're closing with this. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. Daniel was in university. We know the story. The king has a servant to come and to kind of get them ready for service by having them essentially be tailored for his pagan preferences. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself. Simple. I don't read Daniel and his friends resolved. I see Daniel himself resolved that he would not defile myself. I'm not going to do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You want to do it? That's fine. You want to serve other gods? That's fine. I'm not defiling myself. Here are my convictions. Let me present them in a way that's respectable, and he does in this chapter. But what's beautiful is what happens in verse 12. It comes to a point now where he says, test your servants for 10 days. Well, where do they come from? Well, Daniel's stance was contagious. And now the boys that didn't initially make a stand join with Daniel and say, we're in on it. We're not going to eat the king's food. We know our word. We know our law. Test your servants. And then you fast forward to Daniel chapter 3, verse 12, and the incident that we just read. When we read about the incident of the golden statue, Daniel is not present. Nowhere there do we see Daniel mentioned. The only people we see mentioned in the narrative is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And this is what happens. They don't bow. And they come to the king and they say, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. You know what I love about that? that Daniel initiated it. Then time later, so impactful was one man's conviction upon another that when Daniel was absent, they still stood for God. Daniel's not here, but we have now resolved that whether our leader or whatever you want to call it is here or not, we're not going to bow. So the king calls him in and he goes, I heard that uh, you didn't hear the beat. You didn't hear the music. Oh, so music didn't work on you. I'm going to give you another chance. Bow. It's amazing how the world doesn't give up on us, huh? 
Don't give up on the world. Don't, don't stop praying. Don't fail to invite in another time for that person to come to church. They don't stop inviting us to go into the world. I'm giving you another chance. Bow. And I love these boys. Just look at each other perhaps saying, listen, oh king, we respect you, you're a king and all. Throw us in. God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, this is a settled matter. We're not going to bow to the golden statue. So he throws them in. He throws them in into this fiery furnace. And the only thing that's burnt up is the very thing that bound them. Don't be afraid of fire. Don't be afraid of trials. Don't be afraid of testing. Because when you come through it faithfully, the only thing that's going to be burnt off is the very thing that bound you in the first place. The thing that held on to your life. God uses things to burn them off of us sometimes. And it doesn't feel good, but the result is what we're after. And in the fire, he sees another man. And he calls him out. And look what he says in verse 29 of chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, okay, the same guy that influenced not just one nation, he says, all peoples and nations, you're going to bow to this golden statue. And because of three individuals that stood for their God, that did not give in to the culture, that flipped the principle of Deuteronomy 13, that if a few worthless fellows can turn a city around, then maybe a few faithful men can do the same for a pagan nation answered and said, therefore I make a decree. Look what Nebuchadnezzar says. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Now what I love, that's a glorious story. Nebuchadnezzar declares destruction upon those who are faithless towards the true and living God. Beautiful. But what's even more profound was so great was this influence of these three men upon this king that you read something interesting in the first few verses of chapter 4. Let's go to chapter 4, verse 1 of Daniel and see. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you, verse 2. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Verse 3, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. You know what I love about this? The same God, guy that played songs that people bowed to his statue is now singing to the Most High God. Listen to this. So powerful was the impact of these men in their stance for God that God, by the Holy Spirit, allowed a pagan king to write a portion of the Bible. That's King Nebuchadnezzar writing in Daniel chapter 4. So profound was this impact that God even allowed a portion of the scriptures to be penned by a man who at first was threatening to kill and eradicate those who were standing for the living God. This is a real story with a real man. This is true history and here's the hope for you and I. That if we can stand against the false prophets for our God, if we are willing to even go the mile to say, no, my friends and family, I'm still choosing God above your suggestions. And if we can stand firm in the midst of a culture that is continually pulling at us through different means and music might be one of them, you have no idea the impact that we can have. Even upon a man like Nebuchadnezzar. True worship is attainable 
and sustainable. It will be challenged through different people, some further, some closer, some more powerful in their influence. But we just saw a group of men, a group of young people, more than that, that stayed firm. And when they did, the tables have turned. That's what this Bible study is about. Deuteronomy 13 tells us that there's threats. But by the power of God, we can overcome those threats. And if we are willing to just make ourselves disciplined in our hearts from this moment on, when we're taken by surprise of suggestions of those like King Nebuchadnezzar or maybe from those that we hang out on a daily basis, we'll be ready with an answer. We'll be ready to stand for the Lord. We'll be ready to be what God called us to be, and that is consistent worshipers to the living God. Let's pray, guys. Father, we come before you with the revelation that we've received. And we are amazed of how you can take a chapter in the book of Deuteronomy and make it so relative. Lord, we are not overwhelmed with condemnation, but overwhelmed with hope. To know that we're not just on the defensive, we can be on the offensive. It's not just shooing away and rejecting things only. It is speaking up. It is taking a stance. It is wisely presenting our convictions when they are challenged. And to believe that people can be changed by that. That my friends can be changed by that. That my family can be changed by that. That a culture can be changed by that. And the New Testament teaches that even false teachers can be changed by that. Lord, if, if people can be so bold to try to bring us away from you, help us to be bold enough to bring them to you. If people can continually suggest rebellion against you, help us love you enough not to be ashamed to defend you. Help, help us love you enough that even when the pressure seems so high, and even like those three young men, when everyone around us is bowing, that we would stand firm. Lord, if, if these men could stand even in the midst of a fiery furnace, blasting in front of them, feeling the heat of that very thing that will soon take their lives and still say, I'm not gonna even bring my chin down. How much more we, at that high school table, sitting with those friends, how much more we in that office, in that lunchroom meeting with people who don't know God, how much more we, when we're at home with our siblings, Lord, we know that this isn't a call to be rude, Lord, we know that this isn't a call to be unwise. But Lord, it is a call nonetheless to stand. Lord, if you allow false prophets to run around rampant in Israel's day to test the love of your people, help us at the end of this Bible study to, to realize that all of what we just heard boils down to one reality, relationship. You just want to know if we love you. 
Give us the power, give us the strength, give us a direction, give us the words, give us even the facial expressions that would be appropriate so that when we try to worship you daily and it will be challenged daily, we will know how to do it, whether it is something that is planned against us or something that takes us by surprise. Give us the filling of the Holy Spirit. But Lord, tonight as your people on this Friday evening, we declare to you that regardless of false prophets or false family or friends or false culture, you have our worship. You have our song. You have our melody. You have our words because you're worthy. And tonight, Lord, we join what the angels have been doing before the earth even began. Worship you. Love you. Adore you. Lord, if anybody in here does not know Jesus Christ in a personal way, let them realize that everything about this study is to learn more about the lover of our souls. And let them realize that they are invited into a vibrant, true relationship with the living God. That the same God of Moses, the same God of Daniel, the same God of Jeremiah, is the same God that by his spirit is in our midst tonight. Help us love you the way you deserve to be loved. Lord, there's some people in here that might be struggling with the pressure of culture. Father, there might be people in here struggling with the pressure of friends and family. Lord, there might be people in here that are pressured even by false teaching. They've grown up one way and they're being challenged with truth and they don't know what to do. But Lord, we pray right now for a wave of faith to flood this house and to bring every person to their feet and to keep their loins girded and strengthened to know that you are for them and not against them that you will walk with them and strengthen them, that even if their faith is tested, you're not looking for them to trip, you're looking to empower them to display a faithfulness that will glorify your name. So Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that as this week has come to a close, maybe it was a week of failure, of denying you, of biting into temptation. But God, your mercies are new every morning. Tomorrow's a new day. And Lord, we know that as much as the message of the prophet was one of great heaviness and weightiness, a call to repentance, every prophet had a message of hope in the midst of that. There is always a message of hope. It's never about condemnation. It's never about making people feel guilty for the sake of being guilty or feeling small or insignificant. It's always a message of this is God's standard and this is God's power to meet it. So, Lord, let every person in here leave here with a hope, even if I messed up yesterday, even if I messed up today. I just heard from my God, and he says it's possible to stay faithful. Lord, take my heart and seal it. Seal it to thy courts above. So, Lord, tonight, may this be a night of rejoicing, of celebrating, that when other people are glorifying golden statues right now, on a Friday night, we choose to be in your house and to worship the living God not out of compulsion, not because we have nothing else to do, but because we've done everything else and we've resolved that you are worthy of our Friday nights. Lord, receive all glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.